Whenever I was 34 years old, I got in a relationship, um, an extramarital relationship with someone, and it lasted for 14 months. Alan um, knew something was going on. Whenever I told him what was really going on in my life, whenever I allowed him to see inside of my facade that I had built up, it was very um, liberating because I had finally gotten that weight that was just weighing me down. It was just sitting right on my shoulders and I had finally gotten it off. And I remember going into the backyard and laying face down um, on the ground because at this point I'd lost everything. Um, I'd lost my family, I'd lost my friends. I felt like that I had, you know, lost myself. I really did not know who I was. And so at that point, um, I confessed to God and told Him all the things that I had been doing. Not that He didn't know, He knew, but it was for me to confess to Him, for me to say it out loud. And at that point, um, I just cried out to God and said, God, I know you're out there. I need your help. I don't know where to find you. Please help me. I wrote out my confession. I took it down front and I totally confessed where I was and who I was and that I was not the person that people thought I was. And whenever I did that, my life changed forever. God says that whenever you confess, that's when he begins to heal your life. Whenever I released it, whenever I gave it all to God and put it at the foot of the cross, then that was it. I didn't have to carry it anymore. All of these people, knowing who I was and what I had done and the sins that I had committed, still, they surrounded me and they loved me. They cried with me. They wanted to be an encouragement to me, but they also wanted to be someone who would hold me accountable for my life and for the things that I had done. I felt relief. I felt um, that the shame was gone. And I felt that all of my burdens had been laid at the cross and that Jesus' blood was actually big enough and it was good enough to cover even the sins that I had committed. There are no sins that we can commit that God's blood cannot cover. Confession is the only way to go. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, turn with me, if you would, into Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. We're preaching through a sermon series called WFR Celebrate this morning, we are going to be talking about the reality that every person in this auditorium under the sound of my voice needs recovery. I want you to say, I need recovery. Say that with me. I need recovery. Let's do that one more time. I need recovery. Maybe you don't struggle with an addiction. Maybe there is not some chronic compulsive sin in your life Everybody under the sound of my voice, though, has a hurt, habit, or hang-up and is a sinner. And that's the purpose of this series, and that's the purpose behind a lot of what we do, is bringing sinners who are sin-sick to the Savior. In Genesis uh, chapter 3, we see kind of the tendency 
of human beings when they start to go through this process that we're going to talk about today of openly examining their selves and confessing that to self, to a trusted other, and to God. This is the purpose of this sermon this morning. This is a very important step on your road to recovery. We've talked about the preceding steps in the course of this sermon especially the importance of realizing that you are not God and that you have to believe that God exists and that God himself has the power to help you recover. We've talked about your need to consciously choose to commit all your life and will to Christ's care and control. And that brings us to our passage, passage of Scripture today in Genesis chapter 3. Before we get there, I was doing some research on the need to confess. And I came across, across this quote by Mahatma Gandhi. He gives, he gives this metaphor, a confession of errors is like a broom which sweeps away the dirt and leaves the surface brighter and clearer. Now, it's certainly an idea that we can all grasp, and I think all, all of us, to some extent, would appreciate that idea of sweeping a surface clean. But when we venture into the realm of human behavior, the idea of exposure or being vulnerable takes on a new meaning. And the tendency sometimes can be to do behaviors that seemingly protect me from the level of being vulnerable required to really purge my life from some of the sin, sickness and sinfulness that is burdening me and weighing me down. So first we're going to talk about the behaviors that people use to try to resist being vulnerable or open or candid as they examine themselves and identify their own faults. Those behaviors arise from emotional barriers that make it difficult for us to consider really openly examining our lives and confessing our faults to ourselves, to God and to a trusted other. So after we look at the behaviors, we're going, to, we're going to look at some of the emotional barriers that lead to our tendency to resist being candid and confessing. Then we're going to talk about the blessing we receive from God if we'll really put God's Word to the test. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 says this, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some... And ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, who who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this? You have done. The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This passage of Scripture records one of the first sins, the first, of the human race. 
And it seems like directly in line with sinful behavior is the tendency to resist coming to terms with the fact that I am guilty of sin. First thing Adam and Eve decide to do is they decide to cover up their sin. That's the first behavior generally associated with the resistance to openly confess and make an examination of myself. In this story, in verse 7, the eyes of both of them are opened after they sin and they realize they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. The tendency is to try and make our sin look as shameless as possible or look as good as possible. This tendency reaches all people all over the world from parents to presidents. You don't believe me, let your mind go back in time to June 17th, 1972, if you were alive then. A group of seven individuals breaks into the Democratic National Convention headquarters in Washington, D.C. The motive for their break-in still today is debated, but it seems like the current sitting president was interested on uncovering, was interested in uncovering the game plan of the Democratic Convention as they try to raise up a leader that can overthrow and ultimately win the presidency during the next re-election. The president who was sitting at this time's name is Richard Nixon. The office complex that housed the Democratic National Convention committee members in Washington, D.C. was the Watergate office complex. Even presidents of the United States, even leaders will try to use tactics to cover up. Nixon ends up using the FBI or the CIA to try and cover up each other from the Justice Department. And the, the web of lies ended up being very far-reaching. And often that's the same phenomenon that happens in our lives when we've committed wrong and are simply trying to cover it up to make it look less bad or as good as possible. It's lie after lie after lie. So much so that just like in Nixon's case and the same with Adam and even our story, we don't even know what the story is anymore. At that point, lots of people just decide, I am going to hide this. I'm going to just conceal it. Now I don't even know what I've told to who, and I can't remember all that's even really involved myself. So it's easier at that moment just to start to hide things. Now the difference between a cover-up and hiding something is that at least in a cover-up, I'm still trying to manipulate you. So we might still feel like we're friends, and in a cover-up, I'm busy trying to be who I think you think I should be. At the point in time I'm trying to hide something, literally, I might run away from you. The way a lot of us hide things in relationship is we create chaos in our relationships. We start becoming chronically late, stop answering phone calls, become a little bit disinterested in activities that we as friends had consistently over time found enjoyment in. Just little things that put space between you and I so I really don't have to come to terms with the things that I'm hiding. And usually at this point in time, people start to justify and rationalize why they're shifting interests or hiding things to make their life easier to live. At the point I start to justify and rationalize, I also generally shift my standard. From a standard I know to be good and right and true to a standard that makes my life easier to live. I want to draw your minds to Amos chapter 7. God's clear that He has a standard. 
In Amos chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, God, through a prophet, speaks to Israel. And in Amos 7, 7, 7 through 8, God, through the prophet, says this. This is what he showed me. This is Amos speaking about something God has shown to him. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. So this would be a line with a weight at the bottom that's straight up vertical due to the nature of gravity. So the Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Here's what I believe to be true, that you and I have been made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Inherently within us as a result of our design is a sense of right and wrong, of morality. And I think each of us instinctively knows when we have strayed from the path of doing what is right and gotten on the path of doing what is wrong. And there's sort of a natural conviction that's also very Holy Spirit empowered that we each feel when we've gotten off the pathways of righteousness And on the pathway of self-centeredness. And to stay on the self-centered sinful pathway for very long, we have to come up with these methods for justifying it as to why why it's okay. And then we have to get people out of our life that would have words and encouragement and feedback for us that would otherwise help us to get back on the pathway of righteousness. And so at that moment, we then start to decide to shift our standards of living to accommodate the lifestyle that... We want to live if we're going to stay on a selfish, self-centered path. That's why people cover up. That's why people hide. Because I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want you to tell me not to do what I want to do. But what we see is that always leads to failure. At the point we sense some measure of failure, most people on planet Earth will do what Adam and Eve did in this story. What happens in the story? Eve takes the fruit. Adam takes the fruit. Each of them eat the fruit. God says, what in the world have you guys done? And Adam pipes up. Me? It was the woman that you gave to me, Lord. She's the reason I'm in this mess. And so what I want to do in my life as a husband based on that is I want to lower my standard to match the standard of my spouse, and then I want to point the finger and blame her as though my behavior is justified because of her behavior. And that's as contrary to Scripture as it could be. Sir, God's calling you to live by a biblical standard regardless of the behavior of your spouse. Yeah, but Trent, you don't know my wife. She nags all the time. She doesn't cook. I have to do my own laundry. And I want to say to that, to that gentleman, man, that's got to be tough. But suck it up. <laughs> suck it up, man. Just because your lot in life for this season may be difficult doesn't mean you get to shift the plumb line to accommodate your self-centeredness and your selfishness. And think about Eve in this story. God says, Eve, what in the world's going on? And she's like, no, no way. It wasn't me, God. It was this talking snake. And ladies, I want to tell you something. Some of your excuses to justify your misbehavior, 
sound about as legitimate as blaming it on some talking animal. Seriously. I'll talk to a lady, and that's not usual, but it can happen where I'm talking to a lady who's just discouraged. Either because the kids are acting rambunctious and she feels like the husband won't step in and help her discipline or, or because her husband's disengaged and since he's not spiritually leading the family, she feels justified in disengaging a little bit too and getting a little bit hostile and porcupine quills coming out and nagging a little bit. I'm like, ma'am, even if your spouse is a little bit disengaged or even if during this season of life the kids are causing some chaos... That's still not an excuse. You don't have the right to justify your misbehavior by someone else's misbehavior. And an excuse along those lines sounds about as legitimate to me as blaming it on the talking family dog. Now, there, there's a flip side to that, though, too. Let me turn your mind to Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, verses 34 through 38. Sometimes... There is some legitimacy to some other people influencing your current state of being. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah has led God's people out of captivity with uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra before him. But we won't get into all the context because we don't have time. And they are in the land of promise. God's people have been in captivity for years. That God's people did not possess a book of the law. So Ezra and Nehemiah, kind of the political leaders of Nehemiah's day, assemble the people after they find the book of God's law and they begin to read the book to the people and the people start to weep. And that's where um, we pick up this story kind of right in here. The people are weeping and they're saying, our kings, our leaders, our priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They didn't pay attention to your commands or statutes. You warned them to keep. They really didn't. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, Lord, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors So they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So it's pathetic the way people sometimes try and blame family or social group or community for the problems they face in life. Sometimes that's pathetic. But sometimes it's legitimate too. Sometimes people have lived through situations that are abusive. Sexual abuse or physical abuse. Sometimes people grew up in families where where one member of the family had a really chronic addiction to drugs or alcohol. Sometimes people grew up in households where one member of of the marriage had multiple affairs or was chronically disengaged and apathetic. Sometimes Some of the things you deal with in life really are the result of another's sin, and that's not your fault. A big piece of this step, of this part of the process, is really trying to examine what junk in my life is a result of my sin 
and misbehavior? And what junk in my life is a result of things that were beyond my control? That's, that's that examination part. And for any of us to really get to do that the way we're supposed to do it, we've really got to have other people involved. Because when I have to confront emotions like shame or sadness or sorrow, it can really cloud my judgment. And it's those things that are ultimately the barriers to my process of open examination and confession. Let's go to John chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. I'm moving now from the behaviors that people engage in to resist examination and open confession to the barriers that lead to those behaviors. So the behaviors are, I try to cover up, I try to hide, or I try to point the finger. The barriers are feelings of shame and feelings of sadness. A really great example of this is found in John chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Let me read to you here this section of Scripture. A woman has come to a well. This is a Samaritan woman. This is midday. And she encounters Jesus. And Jesus says to her, I'm living water. And I have water that if you, t- if you drink of, you'll never thirst again. We pick up right there in John 4.15. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and then come back. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you had five husbands. The man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. I like the verse uh, 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 in John chapter 4 and 15. The way the Bible records this lady is saying, I need this water so that I won't get thirsty. And here's the phrase that really matters to me in this context. And have to keep coming here to draw water. I really wish, Jesus, there was a way where you could satisfy my need for thirst so that I could live the isolated life that would allow me not to have to deal with being exposed to men like you. What we don't see based in this context that this lady is coming to the well midday that would have been the time she would be least likely to see anyone else at the well. Why would she be doing that at midday? Probably because she had a reputation. Probably because people in the community knew what this lady was up to. That she had been in relationship after relationship after relationship. And can you imagine the number of times she shows up in the morning to draw water like most people in the village would have and people start gossiping about her and talking about her And making fun of her. So she just withdraws a little bit more from society because of that shame. And she goes to the well a little bit later. And as the years pass, pretty soon she's going midday. And you almost can see her trying to cover her face and and sneak around the village so that she can get to the well all by herself. Sick and tired of having to come in contact with people to whom she feels exposed who she feels like can see her shame. And she meets a guy who says, I've got the kind of water that will allow you never to thirst again. And she's desperate for it because of her shame. The Apostle Paul really gives us a good contrast here of what Scripture's intent is based on this story. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
I'm going to start in verse 8 to give you some context. The Bible says this. Even if I had caused you to sorrow by my letter. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to these guys. Chastised them. He says, look. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I really don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but it only hurt for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry. That wasn't his intent. Why is he happy? Because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. What's the difference in godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? The remedy and the ending. The remedy people who are worldly use to try and resolve the issue of their sorrow is all those things Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. They try to cover it up, they try to hide it, or they try to blame somebody else for it. The end result of those behaviors is death. But for those of us who are moved by our sorrow to more fully surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and to draw closer to Him... He is the remedy for our shame and our sorrow and the end result of our further deliverance and surrender to Jesus Christ is life everlasting. That's why the Apostle Paul is not sorry. Even if their sorrow caused them a measure of pain now, if it's what leads to a blessed eternity later, he would feel joyful about it. Back to Nehemiah now, that feeling of sadness. In Nehemiah 8 9, the shame of these people as the law is being read literally moves them to tears. They're, they're not there because it's really their fault. They just didn't know. They just didn't know there was a plumb line, there was a standard, there was a measurement by which they should be living their life. And in Nehemiah 8 9, Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep anymore. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. I think so often we hear God's truth and really we're moved, but but we try to hide those emotions or cover them up because we're afraid people can't understand or will see that we're vulnerable. And the only true way, really, to heal from shame and sadness is to face those feelings, to face them. I think often people are most likely trying to deceive themselves. It seems like if I tell enough lies to enough people that really start to believe this web of lies that I've sold, that maybe I'll wake up and I'll actually believe they're true. And so it's this really, it's this self-deception that keeps people from facing the feelings that are the barriers to the kind of repentance and confession that would ultimately lead to the freedom thereafter anyway. To escape self-deception, I want to read you two scriptures. The first and the most important related to self-deception is Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Here you go. 
The Bible says this. Actually, I'm going to stop at verse 9 for the sake of time. But I want to give this to you this morning. The Bible says this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Here's the metaphor. God has a method. He always has a method. And the things that we bury will produce fruit. Emotions are not biodegradable. You cannot simply stuff your emotions deep down within your spirit and assume that given enough time, all of a sudden you're going to wake up one day and they're just going to be gone. I like to think of emotions as organic. What happens if you take an acorn and you stick it way down in the ground trying to hide it so that nobody can get it? Pretty soon, everybody on the planet can see there once was an acorn buried in that soil. Because it produces something very significant. It's called an oak tree. And now even the untrained eye driving by can see where the oak tree is now. There at some point had to be an acorn. This is exactly how it works in your emotional life. And it completely corresponds with the teachings of Scripture. Whatever you're sowing in your life, whatever you're stuffing, whatever you are trying to bury, will, will produce fruit. And pretty soon that little sin that you've tried to hide and the emotions that are attached to it will give birth to some major, noticeable, easy to observe character defect that everybody can see. And so it would become true at that point that the solution you're using to try and resolve your shame and your sadness is actually causing more of the, of the thing you're trying to avoid. But I want to read you another scripture this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The Bible says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Whatever it is in your life that you've deceived yourself into trying to believe doesn't exist. Or isn't really as bad as it seems. Or is just going to go away over time. Whatever that is, I want you to know that every person under the sound of my voice has those kinds of things in their lives. That makes you no different from the person that's on your left or the person that's on your right. Or the person that's in front of you or the person that's behind you. Even the people who would disagree what I just said. The prideful spirit within you that compels you to disagree with me is your thing. And the reality is, if we're all the same, then why be ashamed? If we're all really sinners, and Scripture says, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Every person under the sound of my voice has a hurt, habit, or a hang-up. We are all sinful. And we all need the forgiveness of God. I think once you can step into the truth of the reality that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, that reduces 
the fear and anxiety associated with really doing an honest examination of myself and then being willing to openly confess to the people around me. And when we do, we receive the, ble- we receive the blessing from God that is His love and forgiveness. So I want to talk to you a little bit about love and forgiveness as we're concluding here. Turn with me, if you would, into Hosea chapter 11 and verse 8. Hosea was used by God to demonstrate a very important quality of God Himself. Let me give you some backstory here. The Lord told Hosea to marry a prostitute. And Hosea obeyed. He married her, he loved her, and he devoted himself to her. But guess what? She relapsed. And as she relapsed, she broke Hosea's heart. Hosea, desperate for intervention from God, listens to God's instruction, maybe hoping that God's going to provide a new spouse for him. And God says something really interesting. He says, go back to that same woman and love her again. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 through 11, God illustrates this point because it is God's people who have turned away from Him time and time and time again and relapsed into their bad thinking and their bad behaving and their sinfulness. God says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come against your cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when He roars, His children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling from Egypt. People often ask, how can God, or anybody for that matter, really love me? How can God really love me? Trent, you don't know what I've done, though, man. You weren't there in the deep valleys when I was really broken and far off. You just don't know. You don't know how many people that I've hurt You don't know how many lives I've told, how many images I've seen. You don't know the sin in my life. How can anybody love me? And especially God, because He would know it all. And I'm here to tell you, God does know. He knows everything you've ever done. And there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from His love. His love for you is without condition. It's unconditional. That means there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. While you were dead in the darkest of sin and the most miserable you've ever been, God, through the sands of time, saw you and knew you would need a Savior. And so He sent His most precious gift. He gave you everything He could. Not because he was 79% sure you were going to choose him, but because there was a .0001% chance 
He just wanted to take a chance to have a relationship with you. So he gave you his best. And he's consistently pursuing you no matter what the hurt, habit, or hang-up in your life is. He is as close to you right now as he's ever been. And there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from his love. That's why we're so gospel-centered. That's why we're so recovery-oriented. Because Jesus Christ really does love you and he really is in the business of changing lives. And when we'll openly confess and he, and he unburdens us, we get the chance to really live in and experience His love. Because He forgives us of our sinfulness. Last scripture I want to share with you is Acts 26.18. This is the Apostle Paul speaking now. He's in front of the religious leaders of his day. And he is explaining to them his conversion. And he says, I heard... The Lord say to me in Acts 26:16, "Get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, where God guides, he provides. I'm sending you to them. Have you ever wondered why why God sent Jesus, why he gave us his word? Why he pursues us? I love Acts 26.18 because we get the answer to that question. Hear this this morning, church. Somebody needs to really get this. I'm sending you, Paul, to them because I want their eyes opened. That's why God does what he does. He wants to open your eyes. I want to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what God's plan is for your life. He wants your eyes to be opened. He doesn't want you to be blind anymore to your sinfulness and your deceitfulness. He doesn't want you to hide. He doesn't want you to cover up. And He doesn't want you to blame anybody. And He wills not for you to live in your shame and your sorrow anymore. He wants to take you from all of that darkness. And move you into His glorious light and out from under the power of Satan. Underneath His power. And He wants to forgive you. He wants to remove every wrong you've ever done completely from your record. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is the tail end of Acts 26, 18. So listen to this. I want them to receive forgiveness of sins. And here's what's so cool. A place. I want you to say that with me. A place. Say it one more time. A place. How do I have time to share my whole testimony here? Uh, eleven years ago, on the second of this month, that was four days ago, I celebrated eleven years clean from drugs and alcohol. So awesome. The 30-second story is homeless, IV addict, in and out of psychiatric wards, spent over 18 months of my life in and out of treatment. And God delivered me from all that. And if I'm going to be candid with you, I'll tell you what I was looking for that whole time. I was looking for a place. I just wanted a place to belong. Every 
everywhere I looked, I came across a dead end and a dark alley and a fork in the road. And I just couldn't find a place. But you know why God sent Jesus and men like the Apostle Paul and gave us his word? It's because there is a place for you. There's a place for you. You fit. You belong in God's family. And you're not just a second class, second rate citizen. If you've had a hurt, habit, or hang up, or there's a sin in your life, or you've been miserable and broken by your shame and your sadness, it's not like God just forgives and you barely get in. It's not like God just forgives and you get to slip barely into the courtyard and from a distance glance at Jesus or you have to sit in the back of the auditorium for the rest of your life. In Matthew 26, 18, uh, Acts 26, 18, he says, Your place will be among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Man, we get the choice seat. We get to meet Jesus and he will fellowship with us in the most beautiful love that you will ever know. You have a place. There is a place you fit. And that is right next to Jesus. I'm so thankful that, that if you've ever felt out of place this morning, that I can say to you today, welcome home. If you've ever thought that you didn't belong, if you've ever thought that your background or your sinfulness kept you out, I want to say welcome to you. And I'm going to conclude, and and while we sing and as you stand, if there is a need in your life, I want you to come forward and let us pray with you and encourage you. So while we stand and sing, I want you to take that opportunity today.